Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. World of Secrets Season 2 investigates allegations surrounding one of the most powerful religious figures of the 21st century, TB Joshua. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. Sometimes ideas in physics can feel so abstract that they border on philosophy. Concepts like higher dimensional space or time ceasing to exist, subatomic particles behaving like waves. Often it's when someone comes up with the simple analogy to explain these ideas that we can get, if not the full picture, at least a glimmer of understanding. This is particularly true in the area of science that my guest today, and yours truly, work in theoretical physics. Please don't turn off. As well as being one of the most respected physicists in the world today, Sir Michael Berry continues the tradition of making complex ideas accessible. In his hands, even the blurred edges of a rainbow or the way light dances on the bottom of a swimming pool can reveal deep mathematical secrets that underpin our very existence. His most famous contribution to science is an incredibly technical aspect of quantum mechanics. But thanks to his explanation comparing it to how we park our cars, by the end of today's conversation, you might just get that glimmer of understanding. Michael Berry, Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of Bristol, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you. Michael, I'm looking forward to walking with you through your life story But do you mind if we start walking through the front door of your house? Because I understand you have a collection of gadgets and trinkets that a physicist like me would love to see. Tell me about one or two of them. Okay, I've got a collection of spinning tops and uh, little optical toys and prisms and the like. Gadgets like this, I, I have fun. You have a rocking chair that swings sideways, is that right? Well, it can move in, in several directions. Nobody can sit still in it. it it's... <laughs> You've been obsessed with the nature of light throughout mm. much of your career, and, and a lot of your gadgets are to do with optics and mm. your lenses and mirrors. Tell me more about this magic oriental mirror that you have. Oh, yes. That's a, a mirror which was originally created, not my version, but the original is 2,000 years ago in the Han Dynasty in China. The magic comes when instead of looking in the mirror, you shine a light on it and look at the reflection cast on the wall. You expect to see a disc of light, and you do. But inside that disc, you see a ghostly image of the pattern that's on the back of the mirror. I've had fun in relatively recent years explaining the rather curious optics of how this pattern on the back is ghostly reproduced on the front. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely device, very dramatic. You've studied such a wide range of phenomena. In fact, you seem to have felt no need to focus on what might be regarded as the most important or the most fashionable questions in your field. I'm not a very competitive person. I, I think I lack the gene for competition. I've, uh, <laughs> in my who's who entry, my interests read anything but sport. So I prefer to think quietly about matters that other people aren't studying. Of course, you run a risk that nobody is interested, but I've been fortunate in that some of the things I've studied uh, turn out to be popular later. So in a sense, I, I've been lucky. Well, Michael Berry, you were born in 1941, a Second World War baby. Any early memories as a, as a young child during yes, the war? Yes, my, my earliest memories, very unclear. There was a bomb fell in the street, lots of noise, people running around. 
Another was I was in an air raid shelter with my grandmother and I banging my head against the wall. I was crying and she was comforting me during an air raid. But this is all I remember. Mm. This was in London. It was in London. I was born just outside London. My father was a taxi driver. He'd been in the army for seven years before the war in India. Right. Uh, but he was then too old to go to the front line. Were you evacuated? Yes, Bournemouth, towards the end of the war. And okay. My memory of that is uh, in a nursery school. I was, I was three, three and a half years old. And I was very annoyed because we all had to lie down and sleep in the afternoons. And I didn't want to. <laughs> I remember that. What was your mother like? She was very intelligent, uneducated. Of course, in those days, people left school at 14, and my parents both did. Mm. She was a dressmaker. And her family had come across from Poland. Her parents parents, had come across from Poland in 1890s, and my father's had come from Ukraine in uh, 1906. You mentioned your father uh, had served in the army, had served in Mm. India. Mm. I gather that was quite unusual for a Jewish man back then. It was very unusual. And he changed his name because there were a lot of anti-Semitism then. And his brother, Ben, called himself Ben Bennett. And his brother, Morris, called himself Morris Morris. But my father was more imaginative and we don't know why. (laughs) And your parents, I mean, they split when you were a teenager, but it was a a turbulent marriage, wasn't it? It wasn't a very happy upbringing. I mean, he he used to beat my mother. I mean, he accused her of humiliating him, but she didn't. She was much more intelligent than him. And in a different era, she would have had a completely different life. Did this turbulence during your home life mean that school was a struggle for you? I did spend some times in infant school wondering whether when I got home, my father would have killed my mother. He never would have done, I now realise. But when you're a kid, you do worry about things. But I am by nature a rather cheerful person, so I was preoccupied with my own more positive thoughts. But... That Mm. unhappiness was there. And what sort of student were you? Well, I always managed to pass at just the level I needed to get to the next stage. Were you encouraged to go to university by your parents? No, this was largely incomprehensible to my family. I thought myself that I would like to go to university. And fortunately, in those days, we had maintenance grants, which were almost automatic if you Mm. came from a family that wasn't very prosperous. When I applied, Bristol turned me down. So I went to Exeter, which was actually a good choice for me. I'd hardly ever visited the countryside as a kid. And when I went on the train and saw this red earth and these rolling hills as you approach Exeter, I thought, this is amazing. I must Mm. come here. Well, Michael Berry, you did go to Exeter to study physics as an undergraduate, and that's where you met your first wife, wasn't it? Yes, she was a student of sociology. Mm. We got married rather young, too young. But we're very good friends, by the way. Well, I'm sure one of the things you don't regret is having your first child so Mm. early, very soon after you'd graduated. That's right. That was very good to become a father young. As it has been to become a father much older. I mean, they're different experiences, but they're all worthwhile life experiences. Well, Michael, you graduated from Exeter, then went north Mm. all the way to St Andrews to do a PhD. What drew you to Scotland? My professor in Exeter was a Scot, and when he knew that I had by then aspirations to be a theoretical physicist, he suggested that I should go to Scotland. And the first person he asked me to write to, replied along the lines of, 
well, what we do is very difficult. You haven't studied mathematics systematically. It might be too difficult for you. Well, my professor in Exeter said, well, he shouldn't have written that. But there's someone else, Bob Dingle in St. Andrews. He's just arrived there, and he wants to build up a group of research students who write to him. He was very welcoming, and it was actually a perfect choice for me, as it turned out. Of course, you'd moved with your then young family from one end of the UK almost to the other, Exeter up to St. Andrews. How did the family settle in? It it wasn't a terribly happy time for them because uh, I mistakenly chose a -a rent-a-cottage just outside St. Andrews in the middle of nowhere. Um, My wife was then stuck there with a young baby, hardly saw anybody from one week to the next, which was sort of psychologically difficult. So we moved into into the town a year later and that was much better. Was your supervisor aware of the difficulties you were going through? We never worked directly together, but... When I did see him, he was immensely helpful. I believe he helped you get some extra money by taking on some lecturing. I was very intimidated. I mean, in my second year, he said, the person who lectured on Einstein's theory of general relativity last year has left. Will you give the lectures? So to give graduate lectures on general relativity was pretty intimidating, but I learned it and I enjoyed it. I gather you learnt some valuable lessons by reading the writings of John Lytton Singh. I did. So my research supervisor, Dingle, told me that J.L. Singh, who'd written the books on relativity that I was so enthusiastic about, was coming to London. And would I like to go to London? He would pay my fare. And I was spellbound, not only by the content of the talks, which are not what I expected. They were about waves and rays, subject I, I later made my own in a sense. But by his eloquence, he was in the tradition of the the Irish orator. Much of my subsequent career was developing those ideas and combining the mathematics I'd learned from my supervisor in Scotland with these physical areas of application. So it's interesting how almost chance events can determine the course of one's life for good or ill, and in my case, for good. Mm. Well, in 1965, Michael, you received funding for a research fellowship and and decided to approach Bristol University. Why Bristol? Because I had learned that there was a new professor in Bristol, John Zyman. He was a condensed matter theorist. He had written a book called Camford Observed about the culture of uh, the old universities. And I wrote to him and I said, look... I don't want to study condensed matter physics, but I liked your book and I have money. I have a fellowship. Could I come to Bristol? So I did come to Bristol and he took me to lunch with a professor of philosophy and professor of entomology. And it was a kind of wide ranging intellectual conversation that I had dreamed would happen at universities and hadn't quite happened in Exeter or St. Andrews. And I thought, this is a wonderful place. I want to come here. And I didn't leave. I'm still here. The rest is history. Yes, yeah. So you you settled in Bristol, and clearly that's where you did all your most important work. Mm. As I mentioned back in the introduction, you've had this lifelong fascination with digging into the science behind phenomena that we see all around us in everyday life. You refer to these as the arcane in the mundane. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by that? Science in the vulgar stereotype is often thought to be narrow. You dig into some little detail. Well, in many ways it is. But there's another aspect in that it connects areas of experience and observation in unexpected ways. Then you realise what a wonderfully unified world theoretical physics of often familiar phenomena 
is. It's a great cultural unifier. So that's the arcane in the mundane, mm. the deep in the familiar. Another example of this that has fascinated you is tidal bores, in which a, a river reverses direction and, and flows upstream. It famously happens on the River Severn, close to Bristol, and you like to take visitors to see it in action. Why is this phenomenon so interesting to you? First of all, it's a beautiful wave phenomenon, and much of what I do concerns the geometry of waves of different kinds, quantum light, also water, and it illustrates the unification that we seek in science. Isaac Newton was the first unifier, and he told us, and this was astounding at the time, that the force that pulls the tides, keeps the moon in its orbit and the earth, and holds us to the ground, gravity, is the same force. And when you see this tidal bore, you see immediately, you experience all three elements of this unification. So it's a very beautiful thing. Especially if you see it at night, you hear it coming. Then you see this white line as it approaches. And, and then, as you said, the river reverses direction and flows upstream backwards for an hour. It's flowing upstream but downhill. So it's uh, spectacular on many levels. You've written that Many incompletely understood phenomena lurk in the borderlands between two physical theories. You're referring here to what we call classical mechanics, the, the physics of our everyday world, and quantum mechanics, the physics of the, the, the tiny world of atoms. These borderlands between the two th theories, you say, are your intellectual habitat. What's the fascination with this boundary between the quantum well, world and the, our everyday world? You see, these different formulations describing the same set of phenomena are very puzzling. How can two such different conceptual frameworks describe the same thing? Philosophers call this the problem of emergence. How does classical physics emerge from quantum physics? Well, it turns out these are very difficult mathematical problems. There are, in the borderlands between the theories... Very characteristic, unexpected phenomena. There are multiple sort of transitions here. Yeah, so you've got, exactly. you've got rays of light compared mm. with waves of light. You mentioned emergence, you know, how uh, yeah, the, the wetness of water could never be determined by That's studying right. a exactly. single molecule of yes. water. There are many unsolved problems to do with this emergence. The following example, quantum mechanics is, is the theory of matter electrons and protons and neutrons and the, the Schrodinger equation as it describes the principle or phenomena. But this in principle is a weasel expression because we know that one property of matter, which we all share, is that sometimes it's alive. So the question is, where is aliveness in quantum physics? We don't know. We've no idea. So this is an example of an unsolved problem of emergence. Mm. You'd moved into this, uh, deeper into this borderland area in, in your work, in your career during the 70s and, uh, and 80s. And it's also the middle ground between maths and physics, isn't yes, it? Do you, do you see yourself as a physicist or a mathematician? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. And it's, I, it's, I appreciate it. It's the only answer mean. I yeah. can give. Yes. <laughs> People often ask me, and I often quote quantum chemist Peter Atkins determining where mathematics ends and science begins is as difficult and as pointless as mapping the edge of the morning mist. And I spend my life wandering in and out of that mist. And yet you were warned off doing a PhD at Edinburgh as, yeah. as a young student because you were told you didn't have enough of a mathematics background. Well, that was true then. <laughs> You've picked it up I on the way. I was clueless when I arrived in St Andrews. <laughs> 
1984, you made arguably your most famous discovery, certainly among quantum physicists. Known today, although I know you don't like the term, but it's known in the rest of the, the, the physics community as the Berry phase. There's absolutely no way we're going to be able to unpack this idea fully here on this program. But, you know, we could have a, a bit of fun trying. Mm. You've got various analogies that you use. You, you compare the concept, for example, to a falling cat. Mm. So if you drop a cat upside down from rest, you would think conventionally that there's no way that she could turn herself right way up. Because to be technical, there's no turning force, it's called a torque, that acts on her. Her angular momentum is zero all the time. She cannot rotate but she turns and she does that because she's not a rigid body. She can deform her body, twist this way and that. You can then show by little simple models. And it took a long time for people to understand this. There's a recent book about the falling cat, how many <laughs> physicists got it wrong, how by appropriate deformation of her body, she can turn without ever having rotated. And it's that mathematics, which goes actually back several hundred years in its abstract form, of which this geometric phase is an example. It turns out it's an application to waves. Well, this was a little extra unanticipated contribution to this phase after some time when you change the forces that act on atoms or molecules in such a way that the forces at the end are the same as at the beginning, a little cycle. The phase is not what people had for 80 years thought it would be. And this little extra bit of phase, which I regarded as an amusing little calculation, turns out to appear all over the place in science. There's another analogy you use involving trying to park a well, car yes. in a tight imagine space. You, imagine you reverse park your car in a narrow space. Uh, you often get it wrong and you find yourself some way from the curb and you perform a series of snaking manoeuvres. You steer and you drive, you steer and you drive. Now, each time you get a little bit closer to the curb, that little extra closeness after each little cycle of steering and driving, is analogous to the geometric phase. Now, it often turns out, uh, I'm guilty of this, that you need many more such manoeuvres than you think. And you keep turning, turning, and finally you do get close enough to the curb. And that fact that you need very many more, that's hidden in the mathematics of... Uh, of, oh, of, not, of, not of just carbon. in bad driving. No, it's not just bad. It's <laughs> inevitable in the mathematics. The, the smaller the space between the two cars, the more of these manoeuvres, many more than you might anticipate. So <laughs> once I realised this, and I wrote little computer programmes simulating the, the, the car parking, and under the, it actually helps me park the car because I can think more about the geometry of what I'm doing. But, uh, that's not the same. That's not going to work for everybody. I mean, as you say, it's had wider applications in other fields, in chemistry, mm. in condensed mm. matter physics. You didn't expect it to have such importance, did you, at the time? I didn't. So what would you say you are most proud of as, a, as an achievement in oh, your career? Oh, it's, it's, it's a discovery about infinite series that don't converge. You have Zeno's paradox. How can you get from here to there? Because first you have to cover half the distance, but then you've still got half the distance to cover, and then you've got half the distance that remains. That works because, as it took thousands of years for humanity to understand... You can add together infinitely many numbers, and if they get small fast enough, you get a finite answer. <laughs> yes, that's One right. One plus a half plus a quarter is, is two. Right. But then in physics, you find infinite series of superficially related, which appear to be converging to some answer, the result of some calculation you're trying to do, but then they don't. Then the, 
the contributions get bigger and bigger. But these are very common in physics, uh, and, and, and one needs to understand them. And there's a lot of historical mathematics devoted to understanding. And I made a contribution to a particular part of that understanding. So I'm proud of that little technical contribution. Right. It's called it's called the Berry smoothing. I mean, I don't use that term. Uh, so uh, if if you like, that's my favourite. Back at the, the time when you were publishing your work on the Berry phase in the mid '80s, of course, on the home front, you had at that point married your current wife Monica and you'd had your fifth and sixth children when they were babies you had to do a lot of the childcare, didn't you she was doing first a PhD and then a postdoc and she wanted to continue working now the university nursery took children then only from 18 months now they take them younger so between six weeks and 18 months I brought up those children in my office first one then the other I did some of my best work in that time. This was after the phase, but while I was developing consequences of it and then starting new things. So this was an experience I, I treasure because it's something that many men don't have. And uh, I mean, I'm close to all my children, but it's a different kind of bond that you develop when you look after them every day. Mm. So it was an interesting experience. One of the difficulties for scientists who make a breakthrough is to have an answer to the inevitable question, how will you apply this? Because the uses for discoveries are well, often unforeseen. Quantum mechanics in particular has enabled technologies to be invented that could never have been dreamed of when the original science was done. You've combined two of your beloved interests, music and physics, to write the popular lecture, How Quantum Mechanics Democratised Music. So how did you do that? In the 1980s, engineers developed the CD player. That was the first really convenient way in which people anywhere in the world could hear music essentially perfectly reproduced. So music became democratic in the sense that anybody could hear without having to go to a concert, whatever. Now, at the heart of that machine is a laser. The laser had been developed 20 years before by physicists. I remember as a student seeing a laser, wonderful, this bright beam. Nobody knew what to do with it. It was called an invention looking for an application. They didn't dream that people with a different kind of cleverness 20 years later would uh, uh, use the laser to reproduce music perfectly. Now, those physicists who invented the laser were applying ideas developed 40 years before by Einstein groping towards the quantum mechanics that was developed shortly afterwards, he, with his genius, never understood that people just after his death of a different kind of cleverness, experimental physics, would use his ideas to create the purest, brightest light. But it came from quantum. So quantum physics democratised music. Mm -hmm. And I get this sense of, of an openness, an air of creativity and mm -hmm. playfulness about the way you work that maybe has echoes of a musician or an artist you say you've often gone into the office without knowing what you're going to work on that day sometimes i mean there are problems i'm thinking about all the time but sometimes i i walk to work and it's a great pleasure to spend 15 minutes walking to work uh, in bristol and, and and i don't know what i'm going to be 
thinking when I when I arrive there. And of course, serendipity plays a big role in science it as well. It really does. It does. But was it Pascal? Chance favours the prepared mind. I gather once while walking into a shop in Zurich, you you, you stumbled upon you know, completely unexpectedly mm. uh, a, a rather intriguing toy. Yes, it's called the Levitron. It's a, it's a magnetised spinning top, and it, you spin it. It's difficult to do. You need some dexterity uh, above um, a base which is magnetised which repels it, and then it, it can spin suspended in midair. Now, that was very surprising because there's a theorem that naively you think should apply that no such uh, uh, levitation by magnetization uh, can ever be stable. And indeed, very often it falls down very quickly. Mm. However, I was intrigued by this, and it was a little area of dynamics, and I could find there was a little narrow domain of stability, and if you get it spinning in that domain, it could hang persistently for about five minutes, spinning mysteriously with no means of support, levitating. So that was fun. And it then led to a collaboration you had with another physicist mm. that we've had on The Last Scientific, Andre Guy, yes. you, because you'd heard about his experiments with levitating frogs. It has. Somebody said that, you know, there's this guy in Holland, Netherlands, who levitated a frog, and I thought, oh, well, that's amusing. And then I thought about it, and I realised it was the same mathematics, and I learned that uh, he had done this experiment, very beautiful, very skilled, but didn't quite understand how it worked and why he had to tune the magnetic field in a particular way. So I met him, and we collaborated, and he'd done the experiment already, and mm. I did the theory, and we wrote a paper about it, yeah, which led to us being uh, awarded the Ig Nobel Prize, which is <laughs> a, a kind of semi-humorous prize, I mean, the, the description is physics that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. It's not true. So that, that was amusing, and <laughs> it attracted more interest from journalists and other people than it deserved, but it was fun. That was around about the year 2000, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. A few years before that, of course, you had already been recognised for your more serious work in physics, uh, and in fact, you'd been knighted. Yes. What was that occasion like? It was good. I enjoyed it. Meeting the Queen was a, a pleasure. She was a very professional lady, perfectly correct, and put me at my ease. I, I messed up because uh, I didn't realise until five minutes before that you actually had a conversation. And uh, she made the mistake of asking me what I did, and I made the mistake of trying to tell her. And if I'd had <laughs> time to prepare, I would have been more effective. But still, people in the audience, my family, said that you know she was perfectly correct and professional, exactly, almost mathematically gave the same amount of time to each of us who were being honoured that day. So it was a nice occasion. I wouldn't say it was the greatest occasion of my life, but it was uh, interesting and unexpected, especially coming from a family that I'd come from. Mm. I want to finish, Michael, with another of your innovations. You've come up with a new term to describe the elementary process of mm. sudden understanding, yes. the aha moment. Yes, it's, it's my contribution to particle physics, this <laughs> elementary. I call it the clariton. Now, of course, instantly people understand what it means, this sudden moment when you understand that there can be big ones, mega claritons, little ones where you find a certain bit of mathematics, you ah, oh, this little trick will solve it. But there are also anti-claritons that come the next day and cancel out what you thought you understood yesterday and then realise you don't. <laughs> so yes, the clariton, that's so, what I dream of having. So Michael Berry, thank you very much for sharing a life scientific. It's my pleasure, thank you. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. 
It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.